That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. There are a bunch of news stories here that I want to just tick through fairly rapidly, but 157 Republicans just opposed renewing the Violence Against Women Act. Why? Because there was a piece in there that said that people should not be sold guns if they have in the past been convicted of engaging in violence against women. 157 Republicans, I'm guessing probably all of the men, said, uh, no, we're not going to go along with that. It's kind of breathtaking, you know, when you think about it. Meanwhile, Trump heads to the border to visit a section of repaired fencing and to see his new plaque, the new commemorative plaque that he commissioned for himself, praising himself for building a wall. Turns out that the plaque, which has at the very top, it doesn't say United States of America, it says Donald J. Trump in big letters, and then underneath in smaller type, President of, and then underneath that in small type, the United States of America, has commissioned and did a wonderful job and all this kind of, but it turns out that it's not hanging on a wall, it's hanging on a fence, and it's not hanging on a fence that is part of Trump's new border wall, it's just this little piece that's being repaired. But... It's shiny and it's pretty and Donald Trump had the government pay for it. It's got his big name, his name in big letters. So he's going to spend millions of your tax dollars flying all the way down to Southern California to stand in front of us for a photo op. Well, it turns out, according to Scott Dworkin, Trump's holding a fundraising event in a Beverly Hills mansion of a healthcare executive with tickets running to $150,000 a piece. He's not assessing a border crisis. He's fundraising with photo ops and PR stunts as a cover so he looks like he's working. He's not. And, of course, I just retweeted this, pointing out that this is how you get the taxpayers to pay for your fundraising activity. It's pathetic. I mean, I don't know how to describe it other than pathetic. As the chair of the House Ways and Means Committee has asked for Trump's tax returns for the last six years, Back in 1924, when the Teapot Dome scandal was erupting and Congress wanted to look at the president's tax returns and also at the secretary of the Treasury's tax returns, because he seemed to be involved in this. Oh, and the secretary of the Navy, Albert Fall, he was the guy who was convicted of this whole uh, kind of bribery scandal. Teapot Dome was a place where uh, either oil or natural gas was being stored out in Wyoming, as I recall. 
And so Congress passed a law that said if the chair of the House Ways and Means Committee asks for tax returns of any person in the United States, you must cough them up. And the Republicans used this vigorously over the last couple of years when they went after Lois Lerner. Remember the woman who was a supervisor at the Internal Revenue Service who they accused of giving liberal groups tax exemptions but not conservative groups? Now, it turns out that that was a lie. I mean, you know, they were approving and not approving as a percentage of, you know, applications that were being made, both at about the same rate. But they used this law to get tax returns for liberal groups and, and conservative groups to try to make their point. So, you know, the Republicans in Congress are very, very familiar with this law. Well, it turns out that now that under this law, Congress can actually get Trump's tax returns, it's going to have to go through this process, it's going to have to go through the chief counsel, the head lawyer at the Internal Revenue Service. Who is the head lawyer at the Internal Revenue Service? He's a guy named Michael J. Desmond. Now, where did Michael J. Desmond come from? Well, it turns out that Donald Trump actually leaned on Mitch McConnell back in February to confirm Michael Desmond to be the head lawyer for the Internal Revenue Service, making that a higher priority than making Bill Barr the attorney general. Now, why would Donald Trump care so much about this obscure lawyer position? Well, it turns out that that obscure lawyer used to work for the Trump Organization. He's a former employee of Donald Trump, and he's now the lawyer through whom this request for Donald Trump's tax returns is going to have to pass in order to get to Donald Trump's tax returns at the IRS. Right. So this is going to get real interesting. Meanwhile, this woman who showed up down at Mar-a-Lago a short while ago and said that she was there to go swimming, but she didn't have a swimsuit, but she did have four cell phones, a thumb drive with malware on it, spyware on it, and a laptop and an external hard drive, that she may well have been a Chinese spy if she wasn't just a hustler. And this is the thing. Anybody, you don't have to pass a security check, background check, or anything like that to give Donald Trump $200,000 to become a member of Mar-a-Lago. And then it's only $14,000 a year to maintain your membership once you've done that. And so, you know, I mean, this is chump change for any government in the world that wants to insert their spies right next to Donald Trump. Why wouldn't they do it, right? I mean, this is just like, this is a no-brainer. It looks like that may well be what is happening. As one of the White House officials told the Washington Post, quote, the president has no idea who most of the people around him at the club are. Right, so the spies love this. Incredible stuff. And the International Criminal Court, an interesting organization that the United States played a role in creating after World War II, the International Criminal Court which after George W. Bush illegally invaded Afghanistan and Iraq, the U.S. decided to pull out of the International Criminal Court because they were talking about prosecuting Americans for illegal wars and for torture and for you know these black sites, so-called black sites and things like this. The chief prosecutor for the International Criminal Court just had her U.S. visa revoked. So not only do we not acknowledge the existence of the International Criminal Court, not only will we not allow American citizens to be tried before the International Criminal Court, 
But now we're not going to let the chief prosecutor from the International Criminal Court even come to the United States. And finally, New Zealand has laid out strict new gun control laws. I think I mentioned this a couple days ago when it first happened, but it's worth revisiting this new op-ed that I just published. It's over on Alternet and Common Dreams and other places about what the Republicans are up to. So lots to talk about. I just threw a few things out. We'll pick up your calls on, uh, you know, what else might be on your mind today. And uh, Mike in Lomita, California. Hey, Mike, what's up? Hey, Tom, how was your rally? You know, I ended up not going. I was intending oh. to, but I had to get this voting book that I've been working on for the last oh, six yeah. months off to yeah. the publisher. And I still hadn't Ooh. submitted it. So I got started, uh, you know, around one o'clock in the afternoon. And by five, I was not yet finished. And so... Uh, I'm sorry I didn't show up. I had the TV on in the, you know, on the side while I was working, and I had it on MSNBC for a couple of hours there, and I didn't see a single mention of it, which just kind of blew my mind, because apparently there were hundreds of these, and hundreds of thousands of people turned out. Had this been Tea Party rallies, the media would have been all over it. So how was your rally last night, Mike? There was a guy there with a giant dog wearing a, a shirt that said, Alternative Cat. <laughs> and wearing a Trump mask, and uh, he's holding a sign that said, uh, screw you, America, you're my bitch. Yeah. What I called about was, uh, you mentioned the other day uh, that we needed a poster child for climate change on the line of the way Fox... Yeah, like Kate Steinle, yeah. Yeah. Well, my nomination is a five-year-old boy who, back in July, placed a phone call to his great-grandfather saying he needed to come back home because the car fire was bearing down on them. And both his great-grandmother and his four-year-old sister perished in that fire, along with a couple of firefighters, because this was the great fire tornado, which behaved so unpredictably. Right. The people just couldn't get out of the way. It was moving it faster than a person can run, and was something like a 1,000 feet wide and tornadic rotational speed. Wow. So I think that kid who, you know made a call for help that we should be answering. Mm, yeah. That's a good suggestion, Mike. Can you tweet it to me? Uh, I don't mm. tweet. I'm sorry. Okay. I'm in the 20th century. No, that's good. I, I understand. I'd like to be there. So, uh, yeah. Just look up Car Fire in Reading, yeah. July 2018. Yeah. You know, the only uh, downside to that is that PGE now is facing bankruptcy because they are acknowledging that they were not maintaining their power lines, and downed power lines produced sparks that triggered that fire and apparently the campfire as well, unless we're talking about the same fire. And you and I both know that had it not been for climate change, the forest would not have been so dry that it would have exploded the way it did. But, you know, PGE is taking some responsibility for those. Yeah, and if we had any sense, the state would just buy the utility out and get yeah. things done right. Yeah. Well, you know, they tried to do that in Oregon. When Enron went down in flames, the part of Enron here in Oregon was, oddly enough, called Portland Gas and Electric, PG&E. And the city tried to buy it. And, in fact, they offered more than Enron was asking, you know, the asking price. I was doing a local radio show here in Portland at the time. This was, must have been about eight years ago, nine years ago. And the company refused to sell it to the city. They sold it to another for-profit entity because they didn't want it to go public. It's amazing, you know, how the for-profit entities kind of circle the wagon for each other. Mike, thanks a lot for the call. And thanks for listening to KPFK there in Los Angeles. I appreciate it. 
John Hartman here with you, and in the studio with us is a musical satirist, Roy Zimmerman, one of the really great musicians of our era. He's got a new album. It's called Rise Up, as in R-I-Z-E, Rise Up, Roy Zimmerman. And RoyZimmerman.com, Z-I-M-M-E-R-M-A-N.com is his website. You can tweet him at Roy Zimmerman. Roy, welcome. That's all the business I wanted to take care of. You just took care of it in 30 seconds. Excellent. <laughs> it's okay. great to have you with it's us. It's so fabulous to so, be here. Thank you for having me. I, you know, I, I've, I've played your music on our show over the years. We've we've talked about you a few times, and it's, it's just great having you here with us. You've got a song for us. I do, I, because you know, the Mueller report came down, as I'm sure you know. We well, haven't no. seen it. All we've seen, no, is, exactly. all we've seen is the bar cover-up. And it's such, a, it's such a mystery, you know, right? But I think that maybe we got a preview from the president himself. Okay. All right, go for it. When he tweets a tweet from his golden seat, and he spells in all caps, Kofefi. Perhaps it's a new presidential expression, or perhaps a subconscious confession. C is for collusion, conspiracy and covert coordination. O is for obstruction of justice, overt and really obvious obfuscation. V, a vast variety of venal violations. F, for falsehoods, fibs, and flat-out fabrications. E, the emoluments clause, which he's eschewing. F, E, the federal election laws, which he's been screwing. C, O, V, F, E, F, E. Have a cup of coffee, and when you've learned the letters and what each meant, you'll have grounds for impeachment. Smoking hot grounds for impeachment. C is for collusion, O is for obstruction, V for violation, F for fabrications, E the emoluments clause, F E the federal election laws. And if his spelling is clumsy, well, he's spelling with tiny thumbs, C O V F E F E, that's go baby. And that's plenty grounds for I M P R I S O N M E N T. In prison. Ray Zimmerman, bravo. What song of yours is, has gotten the, the best buzz in the last year or so? Well, there's a song off the new record called Rise Up, and it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's more of a heart on the sleeve kind of a song. It's a song that we dedicated to the. Uh, to the student activists from the Parkland High School, hmm. right, who are amazing. I mean, they continue to be amazing, Yeah. right, well-informed and funny and, you know. And we, we have a few minutes. Would you like to perform it? Yeah. <clears throat> you know, they were, they've been all over the news, of course, and they're very poised, these kids. Um, they're extraordinary. They're yes, just they are extraordinary. extraordinary. I mean, and, and it's such a tragedy. There have been now uh, two suicides out of that school oh, of course. as a consequence of this. And then one of the parents in, of course. in uh, and Newtown just committed suicide. Unfortunately predictable, too, you know, yeah. right? Yeah. But, uh, you know, they, 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 they keep their cool. They truly do. One of them went on MSNBC when they got accused of being crisis actors. Right. One of them went on MSNBC and said, anybody who'd seen me in Fiddler on the Roof would know that nobody would pay me to act. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's yeah. poise. I, I just think, really yeah. In the stillness of the aftermath 
Some of us were heard to say Nothing's ever gonna change It's just the way things go Makes you wanna give up trying Makes you shake your head and cry Yeah, we've seen it all before And we know what we know But you, too young to know it can't be done You can do it now for everyone Rise up, rise up, rise up This is your world and this is your time Rise up, rise up, rise up Yeah, you'll be lifting as you climb Rise up, rise up, rise up That's brilliant, that is, that is, he is so good. We got time for one more. Okay. Got something really funny for us? I think, well, sure, you know, um, song parodies are, are, are a great way to get this point across, yeah. too, as so many people are, are, are discovering and so many people are doing so well. It's very democratic, actually, mm. you know, right? As in small d. Yes, as in yeah. small d, exactly. There's a man who leads a life of treason. Now he can't believe the trouble he's in. Gave insider polls to Putin and his trolls. Odds are he's in Leavenworth tomorrow. Secret agent Manafort, secret agent Manafort. Hey, they've given you a jumpsuit and taken away your name. Mention Muller and he barely twitches. Deripaska makes him soil his britches Even at his trial He had Kalimnik on speed dial Odds are he's in Leavenworth tomorrow Secret Agent Manafort Secret Agent Manafort Hey, they're giving you a jumpsuit And taking away your name Yeah, they're giving you I'm taking away your name. Absolutely brilliant stuff. That <laughs> is so good. Yes, so good. Roy Zimmerman, the new album is Rise Up. The website, RoyZimmerman.com, spelled just like it thinks, Z-I-M-M-E-R-M-A-N. Yes. Roy, thanks so much for dropping by. Thank you there. so much, Tom. Great, All right. so great having you in the studio with us. You're listening to Tom Hartman. If you're like me, then safeguarding your money through market downturns is a clear priority. And frankly, we've seen enough market volatility to make any investor nervous. For people like us who think outside the box and read between the lines, it's becoming even more clear that the insider secret of accumulating physical gold is becoming a lot less of a secret and more of a trend. According to the World Gold Council, in 2018 alone, central bank gold purchases increased by over 74%. The bottom line is that we are starting to see the cracks forming in our economy. 
And the faster you take action, the better your opportunity. There's only one company I personally recommend in this industry, and that's the expert strategists at ITM Trading. They specialize in wealth protection and opportunity positioning. Both, as you know, are imperative in our current economic climate. Call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Ask for their free gold protection guide and hedge your bets like the top 1% do. Call one own gold That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. one own gold Let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by Goats for the Old Goat.com and Loving What You Do, the uh, new book by Ellen Ratner. On the line with us is the chief foreign correspondent for Talk Media News, uh, Luke Vargas. He joins us today from New York City. Luke, welcome back to the program. Australia is uh, responding to New Zealand's crisis, the Christchurch shooting the last month that happened in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. And although Australia has already cracked down on guns, I understand that New Zealand was the outlier in that after the 1996 Port Arthur massacre in Tasmania. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this is not trying to prevent a duplication of, of what happened in Christchurch using gun laws. What they're trying to do is attack one of the unique ways in which the shooter in New Zealand really capitalized on some of the lack of regulation on social media content to be able to really amplify, you know, his attack. If you remember, he live streamed the entire shooting on Facebook Live. I did a few interviews yesterday. Your listeners might hear some of that after after our interview right now, actually, on The World in Two. But, I mean, basically, you've seen uh, platforms like Facebook build out these live streaming tools way faster than they've been able to dedicate or have been willing to dedicate financial resources and staffing towards regulating that content. Uh, And, you know, there were uh, evidently, um, you know, (laughs) you know, not really an effective way to get Facebook to stop airing of this live stream of the attack. And now it's really difficult to ever imagine the video of this being sort of purged from the internet, that it will probably live on forever and sort of allow this man's terror to, to, to continue. And so what Australia's lawmakers did is they really raced through legislation. I was watching about two hours of the debate yesterday in the Australian parliament, and it was basically everybody, with the exception of the, the man championing this law, um, who said this is an absurd uh, pace with which, which to try and uh, what they're doing is putting criminal penalties on Facebook and other firms if they are found to be airing what they call abhorrent violent content, and even setting out criminal penalties, including three years in prison, for executives of companies like Facebook if this content is not really immediately detected and taken down, which, again, you know, you can sort of understand the frustration here that these platforms aren't doing enough. There's clearly uh, a disturbing pattern in which Facebook and others have been treated with kid gloves and never really been, you know, held to account, uh, at least in the United States, in terms of sort of adequate regulation. However, I think there's a lot of concern here, much like, and I think we talked about this last week, you know, the European Union Parliament pushing through this Article 13 stuff which basically is a copyright regulation, but it's going to force those platforms to use algorithms to spot copyrighted content. That's what we're probably going to see as a result of this Australian law, that you know Facebook is going to be building out its algorithms to be able to detect 
sort of automatically and down to the second whether something that is being streamed on their platform is violent terrorist content or not. And they say you know, it pertains to rape and murder and other sorts of things. Right. But I think there's a huge free speech concern here, as, as some of the folks I talked to said. You know, what if this is the Philando Castile shooting, where someone is videotaping a police officer shooting and killing an innocent person, would an algorithm filter that out? What about public interest exemptions, which don't seem to exist in this bill? There's a huge movement right now in the United States that's being led by some of the kids who are now young adults from Newtown, actually, Mm -hmm. um, called My Last Shot. That's the hashtag. And they're making stickers for the back of their driver's licenses that say, "If, if I die by gun violence, I want the actual photos of my bloody body to be shown. I've been calling for this. I've been saying, you know, yeah, we don't want this guy portrayed as a hero, but the victims of his violence, their pictures should be shown because, I mean, it's like when we started seeing the pictures of of ravaged lungs in the late 90s, that was when the tobacco Mm -hmm. industry went down in flames. Frankly, in 1996, in Port Arthur, Tasmania, the photos of that shooting were shown in Australia media in, in 96, and that was what provoked a nationwide revulsion. I think the fact that we haven't been seeing these photos is one of the reasons why the gun industry has been able to get away with, as long as they have, no serious gun control legislation in the United States. You can completely understand the emotions of wanting to stop a repeat of what happened. However, I think this sort of gets at this fundamental disconnect between the familiarity that most lawmakers have, and this is not a problem unique to the United States, but that a lot of lawmakers aren't familiar with these technological tools. Then they hear about, you know, outrage, we got to take down the content. And they sort of, again, probably because of the lobbying efforts of these tech firms, think that, you know, if they were able to revolutionize social media, they, they ought to be able to dream up some technological fix here that threads this very delicate needle between free speech and prevention of the distribution of violent content. And that most folks I've talked to say, that's just not possible. You can't just hope to always be bailed out by technology. To, and, and we should not be legislating first without full understanding of these laws and then correcting them later. And I think Australia may have been a little bit hasty in the way they did this. Yeah, there is no one size fits all solution for this. Fascinating stuff. Luke Vargas, the Chief Foreign Correspondent for Talk Media News. Thank you, Luke. Thank you. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Today we're reading from the Polar Bear Expedition, the Heroes of America's Forgotten Invasion of Russia, 1918-1919. It's a story, by the way, that the Russians remember well, but most Americans are unaware of. This is from the prologue, Nizhny Gora, Russia, January 19th, 1919. They've been expecting it for weeks, hell, months. And so the men of Company A to the 339th Infantry Regiment, the Polar Bears, as they would come to call themselves, have stood night and day in 40 below zero temperatures. They stamp their feet and try not to touch bare skin on the frozen barrels of their weapons, lest their flesh be ripped off. They peer through the deep ebony night of their dark log-lined dugouts into the frigid tundra, toward the south and east across the ice-choked river and watch for it, wait for it, and wonder how many will come and how they will perform when they do. And they wonder, too, if and how they will ever get out of this place, this frozen Hades, this last place on Earth at the top of the world. And then early on this morning, they do come, a horde of them, dim forms in the distance spread out across the Vaga River, some on skis, others on snowshoes, all of them armed like ghost warriors traversing the river Styx, hundreds of them to their mere handful of 46. Bolos, the men call them, Bolsheviks. Now a shell flung from upriver, arcing and piercing the barely gray of dawn flies over the village, 
Lieutenant Harry Meade awakens with a start, quickly dons his fur hat and overcoat and boots, and races to the far outpost where this scant group of half-dozen men stands guard against not only the enemy, but the tide of history. The sergeant hands him his field glasses and he squints through the misty, blowing snow. The only sounds the sharp snapping of frozen tree branches and the dull booming of the river ice cracking. He sees them now, coming on several hundred yards in the distance, and he quickly understands that the company is probably doomed. Now a grayish form enters his view much closer and he peels the glass from his eye. Steam comes from his mouth as the thin outpost is now about to be overrun by a nearer group of the enemy who have snuck closer and rise like dervishes from their concealment in the deep snow. Lieutenant Harry Meade, late of Valparaiso, Indiana and Detroit, Michigan, stranded more than 200 miles from his regiment's base at Archangel, Russia, doesn't have to speak as the mass of bolos descends on his small attachment. His men are already furiously firing their machine guns and rifles at this grisly apparition, all while more artillery shells spew over them and land amid them. Meade yells the words anyway, as if by rote, as if it's not too late, as if any of them has a chance. Fire, Meade orders his men. For God's sake, fire! Chapter 1, The March to Intervention. The preliminaries began on March 9, 1918, with millions of high-explosive and gas shells raining across the front between the northern French cities of Prey and St. Quentin. The smothering of the British-held territory continued through the week and beyond and was topped off with a continuous salvo from 6,700 pieces of German artillery, which began at 4.30 in the morning on March 21st. Five hours later, heavy mortars began raining death and destruction on the British Fifth Army, and five minutes later, the advance of three German armies, 69 divisions in all, poured from their trenches and headed east with the aim of splitting the junction of British and French forces on the southern end of the Somme front and sending the Brits in a panic for the protection of the Channel ports. There was an urgency to the assault, and for good reason. With the signing of the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk on March 3rd, Russia had officially taken itself out of the war and relieved the pressure on Germany's eastern front. After years of fighting a two-front war, German forces were now consolidated. Meanwhile, the United States, which had declared war on Germany nearly a year before, had yet to send enough men across the Atlantic to tip the balance in the Allies' favor on the western front. The Germans intended to stay, and by the end of 1914, a dizzying series of parallel zigzagging trenches, French, German, and to the north, those of France's British allies, scarred the French soil, the polar bear expedition. You know, Louise and I just got back from Mexico, and uh, we took a week's vacation uh, with my brother and his family, but it was also a week that I could finish up writing this, this book on voting that I've been working on. And while we were there, uh, my brother-in-law, or my brother and sister-in-law rented a house that we all shared, and it, it, it had, you know, a, a Wi-Fi that was kind of public Wi-Fi. And, uh, you know, going to town, there's public Wi-Fi. At the airport, there's public Wi-Fi. Pretty much everywhere I was, I didn't know, you know, whether it was secure or not, but I was not concerned because Louise and I both use ExpressVPN. I have it on my iPhone. I have it on my computer. I, she, Louise has it on her laptop. I have it on my laptop. Uh, she has it on her iPad. Uh, ExpressVPN, it's one click. It secures and anonymizes your internet browsing. In fact, when we were in Mexico, uh, if it, you know, it, it would have looked to any website pretty much like we were in the United States because the ExpressVPN uh, apparently was just dropping our data and, you know, encrypted 
from where we were in Mexico right into the United States, you know, into a main pipeline and uh, completely safe, completely secure. Uh, with Exp ExpressVPN, I can surf any Wi-Fi without worrying about my personal data being stolen. And it's less than seven bucks a month. For less than $7 a month, you can get the same protection that Louise and I have. And ExpressVPN has been rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar. It comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. You can protect your online activity now and get three months free at expressvpn.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash T-H-O-M for three months free with a one-year package. This is a product. I love endorsing this product. I actually use it. ExpressVPN is something you should have. Visit expressvpn.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M, to learn more. And thanks for supporting our program. Tom Hartman here with you. You know how sometimes you know what you know, and sometimes you know what you don't know, and sometimes, like the Fireside Theater says, everything you know is wrong. You know that you're wrong, but you fear you're right. You suspect you're out of sync. Is it possible to control your diet with your, and your weight, ultimately, with your mind? Roger Thiel is with us. He's a historian. You may have seen him on the History Channel. His latest book is called My Diet is Driving Me Crazy, which is also the name of his website, mydietisdrivingmecrazy.com. And the book is out there and available right now in all the normal books places. Roger, welcome back to the program. Hey, great to be with you, Tom. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. We were on uh, with you last time about your book about the Civil Air Patrol, which was absolutely fascinating. So, first of all, give me a, a quick summary of the book. I, I used, you know, affirmation and kind of self-talk when I was in my early 20s to really, uh, you know, it really transformed my life, you know, to convince myself, as it were, that I could become a successful business person and a successful author. How do you use this internal conversation to make your diet work? Okay, fine. Well, this is a new series of uh, books which support your existing diet with courage, humor, and entertainment. Now, you can also turn to them in an emergency, so we even call this instant emotional support for your diet. Wow. Each volume has 10 very short stories and about 32 uh, dieting affirmations, which we call insights. The stories are very special. They get this now. They place you in the mind of a dieter, usually when tempted by food, and you are there as the dieter finds the courage to overcome that temptation, and this feeling of winning rubs off on you. So it'll help you uh, win your own uh, daily diet battle. That's uh, all new just out since January. Fascinating stuff. We're talking to Roger Thiel, his new book, My Diet is Driving Me Crazy, which is also the name of his website, which is fascinating. What motivated you to write this book, Roger? Yeah, well, well, last uh, fall, I went to a large uh, bookstore, not as usual to the history section, but quite frankly, to support my own diet. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, every book in the section called Diet and Nutrition is worthwhile, but most of them felt so clinical or tedious. And there was very little about emotion and almost nothing that felt entertaining. But then I happened to walk by fiction and literature, and I uh, remembered the deep emotions of storytelling. So I decided to write my own set of books, and they include the special dieting stories. Uh, each, they're only each half a page long, mm -hmm. and I'm very excited about it. Yeah, it's extraordinary. You have a, a brief life-changing insight about Charles Dickens? Oh, yes, yeah, Charles. Uh, what we do is we're coming here to story, and I'm about to, in fact, give you, uh, summarize one of our stories in the mm -hmm. book. But to give people an idea of the power of story in our lives, 
175 years ago, Charles Dickens was going to write a pamphlet for the people of England to say why the rich should help the poor at Christmas time. But he didn't do that. He decided he would turn it into a story, into fiction, and by writing a Christmas carol, he multiplied the message a millionfold. It's become part of our culture. Everybody knows. But let's remember, this is because he used story. Right. And I mean, story is powerful stuff. We are, I remember Robert McKee once saying that, you know, we actually are kind of biological story machines. That's one of the things that's kind of unique about humanity is that we, we learn culture through story. We remember things best through story. If we can insert data into stories and we motivate ourselves with stories, we tell ourselves stories about who we are. We tell ourselves stories about the rest of the world. How do the stories that we tell ourselves about diet work or not work generally, Roger? Most other diet books usually offer, uh, you know, clinical instructions or lists of food, what you may feel when you go through the diet section in a bookstore. We do the exact opposite. Most diet sources would expect you to use willpower or discipline or maybe your conscience or maybe some technical advice or maybe a sense of duty, but no, these stories give you the sudden emotional feeling of winning the diet game, Mm. and they're very short. So I'm going to summarize one. Our uh, website even has a, um, under emergency support section, Mm. it has a subject index which lists stories for quick reference in different situations. So let's say you're concerned about food temptation in a supermarket. So then our subject index can refer to you to a supermarket story, which begins as a dieter returns a bag of candy to the shelf with pride. But then in the checkout line, the wall of candy bars is just so very tempting, and the dieter thinks, well, I just did something so good, maybe now I can. But then this dieter, while you are reading or listening, finds the courage to resist food temptation again. And you feel the success on the level where it counts, the deep emotional level. The book is My Diet is Driving Me Crazy, which is also the name of the website, My Diet is Driving Me Crazy.com. The author is Roger Thiel. Roger is one of the most fascinating writers out there. He's done so much eclectic stuff. Roger, thanks so much for dropping by today. Okay, very good. You bet. Great talking with you. Tom Hartman here with you. That was a, uh, just an enormous amount of stuff going on. That said, one of the things that's going on is that weather is killing people all over the planet. CO2 levels are apparently higher than in the last three million years. On the line with us is Dr. Michael Mann, Distinguished Professor of Meteorology and the Director of the Earth System Science Center at Penn State University, recipient of this year's Nobel Prize for the Environment, the Tyler Prize for Environmental Achievement, the author of numerous books, including most recently, The Madhouse Effect, How Climate Change Denial is Threatening Our Planet, Destroying Our Politics, and Driving Us Crazy. His website, michaelmann.net, and you can tweet him at Michael E. Mann with two N's. Uh, Dr. Mann, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Tom. Always good to be with you. It is always great having you with us. So uh, CO2 levels higher than in 3 million years, really? Yeah, we're over 410 parts per million CO2 in the atmosphere. The pre-industrial level was about 280 parts per million CO2 in the atmosphere. If we continue on the course that we're on, if we do not curtail our burning of fossil fuels, we will more than double CO2 concentration sometime later this century relative to pre-industrial times. And using ice cores and other means of evidence to extend the record back in time, 
We know now that the current level is unprecedented literally in millions of years. And if we continue on the course that we're on, we will reestablish CO2 concentrations that you have to go back almost 100 million years to find naturally. So we're engaged in an uncontrolled and unprecedented experiment with the one planet that we know that can support us and other life. That is breathtaking. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who's a political consultant last week, and I said, with regard to climate, we need to find our Kate Steinle. Uh, anybody who watches Fox News can tell you that Kate Steinle is the white woman in San Francisco who was killed by a, a quote, illegal alien. And the, the right wingosphere just exploded this thing, and they pounded on it for like a year. And, you know, the old, the old uh, saw that a million people dying is a statistic, but one person dying, if you know the details, is a tragedy. And his response to me was, you know, we need to find a Kate Steinle who's the victim of climate change. I just wanted to put that thought in your mind. I don't know if you have a specific suggestion off the top of your head right now, but we are seeing these bomb cyclones. We're seeing now this new thing, a sting jet, the Washington Post writing about this today. Violent weather is killing people in ways that it hasn't in the past. Or is this, you know, just old weather that has a new name? Yeah, no, I mean, we've seen thousands of people perish in unprecedented extreme weather events that simply would not have happened in the absence of climate change, which is not to say that the meteorological event would have happened, but it would not have been an unprecedented wildfire or an unprecedented flood or an unprecedented heat wave. And we have seen them writ large around the planet over the last decade and beyond, we're, we're seeing unprecedented extreme weather events that have been made more extreme by climate change. You add sea level rise to these landfalling hurricanes that yield unprecedented amounts of rainfall because a warmer atmosphere holds more moisture. Uh, you get the sorts of flooding events that literally are killing thousands of people in Africa. Uh, recently, there were more than a thousand victims of that landfalling hurricane that struck Africa last month. And these things are happening uh, around the world. And climate change is taking a huge toll, not just in damage, literally trillions of dollars worth of damage now, but in human life. The toll taken in human lives that are lost to extreme events that just would not have been that extreme and damaging in the absence of our warming of the planet. Bomb cyclone. A bomb cyclone is not a phrase that I grew up with. It's not a phrase that I think I'd ever heard before the last year or three. What is a bomb cyclone? What is a stinger? And why do we need to know about this? These bomb cyclones are sort of what they sound like. They're cyclones that intensify extremely rapidly. Not tropical cyclones and hurricanes, but these are mid-latitude storm systems, the sorts of storm systems that regularly come across the United States and impact us weather-wise. These systems are becoming more intense, in part because of the same factor that is intensifying hurricanes and tropical storms. In this case, this particular mid-latitude cyclone encountered huge amounts of moisture that were coming off the Gulf of Mexico, a very warm Gulf of Mexico providing lots of moisture. That moisture was entrained into this mid-latitude storm, and that was part of what gave it so much energy and allowed it to intensify so rapidly. And it's part of what gave it so much rainfall. And that rainfall combined with snowfall that melted soon after the storm passed, again, to give us an unprecedented flooding event in the Midwest. And now weather events like this have happened in the past, but they haven't become unprecedented flooding events in the past, as they are now because of the added ingredient 
that is fueling the intensification of these storms and the amounts of rainfall and snowfall they provide, the warming of the planet. Yeah. The stinger, I I guess it was called the sting jet, is how the uh, Washington Post referred to it in a piece about this bomb cyclone and the East Coast weather. And what they pointed out was that the bomb cyclone, on one little corner of it, had this little piece that kind of came out like a stinger and kind of curved around like the tip of a sigh, you know, the, th- the things that you harvest wheat with. In that little piece, there was just this explosive wind force. And they talked about how there had been one of these that was associated with the bomb cyclone over the UK a year or two ago, and it killed like 22 people. People were completely unready for it. Meteorologists who were correctly anticipating the bomb cyclone, they didn't even have into their equations or whatever this, this sting jet that was associated. And another one had formed in this thing over the United States. Is that familiar to you? Yeah, well, I thought a sting jet was uh, something that the former lead uh, singer of the band Police uh, flies around in. <laughs> yeah. I've heard these terms before, but I can yeah. tell you what it sounds like it's describing. You get what are known as shortwave disturbances, fairly small-scale cyclonic disturbances that can combine with a developing storm and provide it extra energy and extra moisture and rainfall and snowfall. And the intensification of these smaller scale features can be favored by the same sorts of basic factors that intensify storms in general. Large contrasts in temperature, which you have with a warming Gulf of Mexico and and cold air outbreaks that still happen in the winter. They need a warmer Gulf, and you have larger temperature contrasts. Those larger temperature contrasts can lead to the intensification of a, a cyclonic disturbance. And what was amazing about the bomb cyclone, it was, in a sense, uh, a perfect storm, not to overuse that metaphor, but a number of things had to come together in a fairly complicated way, and the models actually predicted that this would happen about a week out. It was an amazing success story for our models, which are not to be taken lightly. Our our weather forecasting models are becoming increasingly powerful, and of course, the climate models that we use to understand the impacts of human activity on weather patterns have proven similarly prophetic in terms of the things that we predicted and the things that are actually playing out that we're seeing happening. So while petro-billionaire-funded Republicans are ridiculing climate change, we're actually seeing this in real time all across the world, and we're actually seeing human beings die as a consequence of it. Over the next decade, over the next uh, even five to ten years, how much different is our weather going to get? It seems to me that in the last, really the last 15 years or so, I mean, I started doing this show 15 years ago, and we were starting to see more severe thunderstorms. I was living in Vermont at the time, but it wasn't the stuff that everybody talks about. Now it seems to be the new norm, extreme weather. How quickly is this happening? Are we looking at, is this beyond linear, the increase in this? What should we anticipate? Yeah, well, linear is bad enough because linear, you keep on going. Yeah. Um, and that's the work here, right, that there isn't a new normal, that we might think that we need to acclimate to these uh, more prevalent extreme weather disasters, but they'll become more extreme and they'll become more common if we continue on the course that we're on. So there's no reason not to suspect that if we continue to pump greenhouse gases into the atmosphere and warm up the planet, that somehow these uh, events won't become more frequent and, and, and more extreme. They will. And the only way to prevent that, of course, is by solving the problem at its source, 
stopping the continued reliance on fossil fuels and the continued pumping of carbon pollution into the atmosphere. We've passed a three million year point in terms of CO2 in the atmosphere. Don't we need to start talking about decarbonization also, even if it's entirely using natural processes like regeneration of forests and grasslands? Yeah, in fact, I signed my name to a letter that appeared in The Guardian the other day, co-signed by uh, George Monbiot and a number of other, uh, Bill McKibben, uh, Greta Thunberg, amazing young girl who's been changing our entire conversation about climate change and drawing attention to this uh, crisis. We signed on to a letter that said we have to do those things. We need to restore uh, forests and ecosystems to a natural state that better allows them to play the key role they play here, absorbing carbon out of the atmosphere. That's part of the solution. But of course, that effort will be for naught. Um, that, that effort will be futile if we don't stop the worsening of this problem, which is the continued burning of fossil fuels. Yeah, it is truly an extraordinary situation and an extraordinary time that we're all living in. Dr. Michael Mann, the Distinguished Professor of Meteorology, the Director of the Earth System Science Center at Penn State University, recipient of this year's Nobel Prize for the Environment, the Tyler Prize for Environmental Achievement, and the author of The Madhouse Effect, How Climate Change Denial is Threatening Our Planet, Destroying Our Politics, and Driving Us Crazy. Michael Mann, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Tom. Great talking with you. Always great talking with you. This is the Tom Hartman Program. MichaelMann.net, by the way, is his website, and you can tweet him at Michael E. Mann, M-A-N-N. Hey, thanks so much for listening to our podcast. One of our sponsors is the X-Chair, and i got to tell you, they've got this new thing, Dynamic Variable Lumbar Support. They're called DVL. The X-Chair's DVL is really designed to adjust for you. I mean, you know, the average chair, maybe it goes up and down, right? This thing really is totally customizable. Whether you're 5'2 and 110 pounds or 6'4 and 250, the X-Chair actually will adapt itself to you. And now with the introduction of the X-Basic model, there's an X-Chair for every body type and every budget. Take advantage of the X-Chair's new financing option, too. Pay as little as 30 bucks a month to take your comfort and productivity to the next level for less than the cost of a daily cup of coffee. And X-Chair is also on sale now for $100 off. So just go to xchairtom, T-H-O-M, xchairtom.com, xchairtom, or call 1-844-4X-Chair. comes with a 30-day, no-questions-asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. And if you use the code XWHEELS over at xchairtom.com now, you'll also receive a free set of the new X-Wheels with your chair. That's xchairtom, T-H-O-M, xchairtom.com. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Ben in Brooklyn, New York, listening to WBAI. Hey, Ben, what's on your mind today? I'm good, Tom. How you doing today? I just Great. want to say I love your show. Been a Thanks. fan for a good minute. I actually just wanted to chime in on the um, global warming conversation you guys were having. I have a friend who's a stout conspiracy theorist, and he's a global warming denier. And he's told me certain things that I never believed. I always just um, call him a conspiracy theorist, but... I didn't really change my tune until like, I saw that China doing the um, Beijing Olympics. I think it was, they use weather modification techniques to stop it from raining. Yeah, but the technique that they used, which was seeding clouds with potassium iodide, as I recall, is something that we've been doing since the 50s. I mean, you, you spray this stuff on clouds, and it doesn't take a whole lot of it, frankly. You spray it on clouds, and it causes them to... Rain falls 
when at the center of every raindrop there's a particle of dust. And right. over time, those raindrops around those particles of dust accumulate more and more moisture. They get bigger and bigger and bigger. And at, at a certain point, they reach a size where their weight is greater than the ability of the air mass below them to keep them up in the air. And they fall. And that's called rain. And so what the Chinese did is they sprayed this potassium iodide on these clouds a couple hundred miles west of Beijing. So the clouds dumped all their rain in that region. So by the time they got to Beijing, they no longer had enough moisture to produce rain. That's not brand new technology at all, Ben. That's, that's been around forever. It's, it's not, but it surprised me because I had never heard anything about it. But based on that fact, based on this different things like the um, 1977 weather modification treaty that the various countries have stated that they would not use weather for war, Right, and again, that's, that's, for example, if you were France and you wanted to destroy Germany, all you'd have to do is seed the clouds over France, and that would produce a lack of rainfall in Germany. And if you did that every day for a year, all the German crops would die. That's what that oh. treaty's all about. Have you heard of the petition that like 30,000 scientists have signed? They're against global warming based on fossil fuels. Um, you mean, I you mean they're saying that there, it's no such thing? Yes, I have heard of that. And if you look, none of those, literally, not one single person who signed that is an actual climate scientist. Not one. And many, if not most of them, are either phony baloney scientists. They're just you know right-wingers who happen to have some letters after their name, and they were willing to sign the petition. Or the few that actually are scientists are scientists who work for the fossil fuel industry. That petition, which was, what, four or five years ago, I remember debating Mark Morano about it on this program when it first came out. That was so thoroughly debunked within two weeks of the time that it came out that it's a joke today. Is it your opinion that um, weather modification technology exists, though? Oh, yeah. I mean, I just described it. There's things you can spray on clouds that cause them to drop their rain. In terms of the ability to, like, steer wind currents and things, we don't have the energy level to do that. I mean, you know, in theory, it's possible, but it would take so much energy and such massive structures to modify, you know, wind currents and things like that. It's just beyond human engineering right now. It's a lot of things that are classified. Yeah. Yeah, you never know. Ben, thanks for the call. Thanks for listening to BAI. I appreciate it. Jack in New York City listening on WBAI. Hey, Jack, what's on your mind? I was trying to figure out, like, how scientifically, you know, the climate change, because in my mind, I think a lot of people's mind, it's a little unclear. And one thing I thought of was just kind of like cancer. You can't really predict it exactly, but you can say that around the nuclear plant, for example, there's going to be a higher incidence. So it's kind of like epidemic. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. The same kind of statistical analysis that is applied to disease in epidemiological research is being applied to climate change. And what we're seeing is that as our atmosphere takes on more carbon dioxide from the burning of fossil fuels, it holds more heat and it holds more moisture. And as it holds more heat and more moisture, and the ocean's now absorbing 95% of that, as it holds more heat and more moisture, that is causing, in turn, the weather to become more severe. Very yeah. straightforward. It's time to declare a state of emergency. I mean, the president won't do it, I'm sure, but right. uh, maybe a, somebody in Congress or, or somebody in a state, like a state governor. Like well, maybe this is, you know, in, at the state level, I'm not sure that they could do that. But this is where Republicans were very reluctant to support Trump 
in his state of emergency around the southern border because they were afraid that if he could pull that off and he could move money around and stuff, that the next Democratic president could do the same thing around climate. We'll see if that precedent has been sufficiently well established. I honestly don't know, Jack, if it has or it hasn't. Thanks a lot for the call. Mike in Los Angeles listening on KPFK. Hey, Mike, what's up? Hey, Tom, just wanted to load uh, a couple of brief notes on fire behavior out here mm-hmm. and how it's changing with global climate change. One is that UC Irvine study that determined that droughts are raising temperatures and feeding back into creating more droughts because as the water evaporates from the soil, it becomes warmer. They've established this by studying southwest Right. Once, once, once most of the water is gone, that, that evaporative process, which, you know, takes a lot of calories, I think, what is it, 500 calories to, to evaporate one cc of water to convert it from liquid to gaseous state? Yeah, and uh, yeah. and well, once anyway. that's gone, the, the cooling effect of the water is gone. Yeah. Right. And uh, also, starting last year, we heard firefighters saying that in all my 30 years on the job, I've never seen fire behavior like we're seeing now. Well, that's uh, certainly coming to uh, reality in this year's fire season, which, of course, is stretching nowadays throughout the year. And the most remarkable thing, I think, is a fire tornado, which showed up in the car fire Mm. toward the end of July. Yeah, these storms are creating their own weather. Well, creating their own weather, but this is a a new creature as far as I can tell. And uh, this is basically an EF3 tornado built Mm. out of fire. And it uh, initially was about 500 yards across, moving at, eyewitnesses say, from 12 miles per hour to faster than a human being can run. Mm. And this fire tornado actually jumped the Sacramento River, which is at, at its narrowest is about 15 yards wide. And naturally, the uh, people in charge of evacuations and uh, warning people to get out of their homes were somewhat surprised by how destructive and how quickly uh, this thing moved. Yeah. A lot of this, Mike, is the consequence of the jet stream falling apart, which is the consequence of the Arctic warming six times faster than the temperate latitudes. And coming out of that is the weather systems that used to move very rapidly uh, are now moving very, very slowly because the jet stream is kind of drooling down into the mid-latitudes and not moving the way it used to. The, the speed of the current, the, the rigidity of the jet stream itself has been lost. And so this is the new normal, it seems. And, and, and if this is the new normal, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, how many places are going to be able to survive it? We've got flooding on the East Coast and droughts and fires on the West Coast. And rising sea levels. Yeah. And as of this moment, a bunch of school districts east of L.A. and the interior are closed due to air quality from one of the fires that's burning out there. Yeah, from the smoke. What's going on right now is absolutely incredible, and a lot of people are just stunned by it. Darja Mail just sent me a clip. This is from arctic-news.blogspot.com. In 2014, the average temperature in the Arctic on July 6th was uh, 30 degrees Fahrenheit, right, 2014. In 2015, it went up to 43 degrees Fahrenheit. In 2016, it went to 47 degrees Fahrenheit. In 2017, it went to 57 degrees Fahrenheit. And this year, it's 61.9 degrees. The Arctic, I mean, and keep in mind, in 2014, it was below freezing. So we've got a serious problem here, and this is what's driving the insane weather across the world, at least across the Northern Hemisphere. So thank you for the call. Thanks for listening to SiriusXM. 
Hi, this is Tom Hartman. We just put up a new rant uh, for our show's supporters about veganism, about the body having an internal set point. And this whole idea of a get ready for winter response, sort of like squirrels have, you know, in the fall, they know to start adding to their body fat and bulking up their weight because winter's coming and there's going to be a lot less food available. We've developed a similar mechanism through the millions of years or hundreds of thousands of years of human evolution, particularly as we've traveled across Africa and other continents where food may be scarce parts of the year from drought or from you know, periodic dry spells or rainy spells or winter and things like that. It's a fascinating concept uh, that, that all ties back in. Check it out. Thanks again for supporting our program. More information is available at patreon.com slash Tom Hartman. That's patreon.com slash Tom Hartman. PrettyLitter.com slash Howard in Muncie, Indiana. Hey, Howard, what's on your mind today? What's on our mind today is The Limits to Growth. Have you heard of that? Oh, yeah. I remember the, the title of that book by, uh, oh, man, it was this was 30 years ago or so. I'm forgetting the guy's yeah, name. My, my Meadows, he had it printed. I'm holding it here in my hand, my 1972 copy. Mm-hmm. And to me, the one thing, it, and it talks about a lot of different things that can limit our growth or upset the planet. Right. But the one fact that they bring out, they were real emphatic on that. They said, when we're looking to change something, Make sure we only change one thing at a time, because once you change that one thing, there's a lot of other side effects or variables that come into play. Right. And if you change a lot of things all at once, something else can be going out of hand, and you won't know how to control it. Are you talking about the old report? Changed. Is this the old yeah. report from the Club of Rome? Yes. Okay. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, okay. Great. Then, then we're talking about yeah. the same thing. Yeah, you're right. And they were prophetic. The one thing that we've got to change right now is we've got to stop. I mean, we've been running this experiment for 200 years now of burning fossil fuels and pouring the resulting carbon dioxide and methane into the atmosphere, and it has done mind-boggling damage. And we, you know, we need to stop. I mean, it's just yeah, real simple. Well, yeah. Well, here's the other thing with that. Then I'll let you go. This will just take a minute. One of the crop traders that I know, he talked about this several years ago, about 15, 20 years ago, and he was bringing it up that the more carbon dioxide we throw into the atmosphere, the more it helps plants grow. Carbon dioxide does that. And I just read an article a month ago. Some people were talking about the greening of the earth has taken place in the last several years. That is because increased carbon dioxide is causing more plant growth. And yes and no. That, I mean, there's, there, there is a climate change denier who is running around there. He's written a book about this, about how carbon dioxide is food for plants. And in true carbon dioxide is food for plants but plants evolved just like we did over millions and millions of years adapted to the existing atmosphere and environment we are now at co2 levels that we haven't seen for three million years you can easily google this stuff howard if you look at the most recent research over the last couple of years on the impact of co2 on the growth of plants what you will find is yes small amounts of co2 will increase the speed with which plants grow the levels that we're at right now are actually causing plants to produce more cellulose 
but fewer nutrients. It's slowing down the enzymatic processes, all those little complex uh, biochemical processes inside plants that produce the micronutrients that we need. So it's producing crops that are slightly larger, maybe one or 2% larger, but are three or 4% more deficient in nutrients. And it doesn't increase the rate at which they're absorbing minerals from the soil and things like that. And the greening of the world, as it were, is not the consequence of increased amounts of carbon dioxide, it's global warming. Parts of the extreme northern and southern latitudes, I mean, they're so warm now that stuff can grow there that couldn't grow before. Howard, thanks for the call. I mean, you know, we gotta be careful. There's this climate denier stuff that is out there that's funded by the Cokes and, and by ExxonMobil and other climate deniers or, or you know, carbon profiteers is really, really potent and deadly stuff. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.